from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 29th. Today, the story behind the FBI's October surprise, the cost of ordering online, and one more thing. October surprise basically means a last-minute revelation that might scramble the race change the polling numbers and give the candidates very little time to react or adjust to whatever the revelation is. We believe that peace is at hand. Today's disclosure that President Bush knew and approved of the arms for hostages deal with Iran not only directly contradicts the president's claims, it diminishes the credibility of the presidency. Obviously, there's a report out tonight that 24 years ago, I was uh, apprehended in Kennebunkport, Maine for a DUI. I think, I think that's an interesting question. Why now, four days before an election? <laughs> My name is Devlin Barrett, and I cover the FBI and Justice Department for The Washington Post. In the last few decades, it seems like almost without fail, something insane happened just weeks or even days before the election. Right. And then you get to 2016. I have now seen Director Comey's letter to Congress. We are 11 days out from perhaps the most important national election of our lifetimes. Devlin has been working on a new book about what you might call the mother of all October surprises. On October 28th, 11 days before the election, the FBI director at the time, James Comey, announced that he was reopening the Clinton email investigation because of emails found, although he didn't say it at the time, they were found on a laptop belonging to the former Congressman Anthony Weiner. The FBI has just sent a letter to Congress informing them that they have discovered new emails pertaining to the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's investigation. So the FBI investigation of her use of a private email server while Secretary of State had really dogged and shadowed and just hung over her campaign all through her bid for the president in 2016. But then in July, the FBI director publicly announced that he was shutting down the investigation because they had not found enough evidence to charge anyone with a crime. So in October, by the time you get to October, everyone thinks the email investigation is basically dead as far as the FBI is concerned. But this suddenly opens it back up and there's suddenly this prospect of, well, wait, maybe the Democratic candidate for president really is in legal trouble. And what you saw in the polling, she was leading by about six percentage points before that letter. And after the letter, she was leading by about three. Mm. Now, three is still a lead, right? But the challenge of a three-point lead is that a three-point lead is basically within the margin of error, meaning she is no longer in a comfortable position, particularly when it comes to the battleground states that were going to decide that election. So why did you decide to go back to this moment and understand more of what was going on behind the scenes? You know, I have covered the FBI and the Justice Department for a long time. 
And I just have never seen anything like what happened in 2016. And I think, frankly, most FBI and DOJ reporters would say the same, that the, the sequence of events that occurred in 2016 was just so unusual for the FBI and for the Justice Department. And I really felt that as much as people argued about it, as much as people agreed that the FBI's role was important, I often felt as a reporter who covers this topic that a lot of people didn't necessarily understand how it had gone down inside the FBI. Hmm. I think it's important for people to understand what did and didn't happen inside the FBI that year, because I think in a lot of ways, both the country and the FBI are still dealing with the consequences of Comey's decision. Hmm. So where does that story start, this untold story of how this part of the investigation ended up coming out just days before the election? So what happens is that in July of 2016, the FBI director announces at a press conference that he's closing the Clinton email investigation. Good morning. That's obviously a big moment uh, for both campaigns. We cannot find a case that would support bringing criminal charges on these facts. And then in September of 2016, an FBI special agent named John Robertson is working on sex crimes in New York. And he gets the Anthony Weiner case. And the Anthony Weiner case is basically investigating whether this former congressman broke any laws by sending sexual messages to a 15-year-old girl in another state. But he comes across what seemed to him to be like huge volumes of emails to and from Hillary Clinton. And that's because Anthony Weiner was married to a woman named Huma Abedin. And Huma Abedin is one of Hillary Clinton's longtime close aides. Her inbox had basically been downloaded onto Anthony Weiner's laptop. The agent finds these emails on this laptop, knows that's not what his search warrant tells him to look for, but also knows that this could be a huge potential problem. So then what does he do? So he does uh, what most agents would do, which is tell his boss. And he sort of expects that to create a huge, you know, commotion inside the FBI and that people will respond quickly and start investigating this. Instead, what happens is total silence. And it's total silence, but with some added complications in that one of his bosses orders him to wipe his workstation uh, while he's still waiting to hear back what they want to do about all these Clinton emails. Why did they ask for him to do that? The boss's argument was, look, we know that there are some classified material among Clinton's emails. Just generally speaking, that was what the old investigation had found. You, Agent John Robertson, shouldn't be holding on to any classified in material, so I just want you to wipe your workstation. That's a reasonable, I guess, logical way to approach things. Unless you're John Robertson, because at that point, the special agent starts thinking, well, what happens when someone asks me what I did with these files? Because I won't be able to mm. show them because my workstation will have been wiped. I mean, I can tell them and hopefully they'll take my word for it. But do I know that? So he starts worrying if this becomes a political problem for the FBI down the road, it'll just be him that takes the blame. So then what does he do next? He starts talking about, like, maybe I should go tell someone. I mean, if, if my own chain of command won't tell anyone, maybe I need to tell s someone outside about what's happening so that someone will do something. And at that point, the prosecutors get alarmed. They worry that he's, you know, contemplating taking steps that would blow up his career. The two prosecutors 
take the issue to their boss and say, look, this agent seems to be really unhappy and really upset and really concerned. So I think we should raise this with folks in Washington and, and see what's going on, which they do. And while the agent doesn't really know this for a little while, that actually breaks a sort of bureaucratic inertia that was going on in this before. So then things start moving. And how do they start moving? The FBI in Washington starts asking questions and starts trying to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to look at these emails? Because they were obtained for a different investigation. And so they brief the FBI director, James Comey, about what they think is on the laptop. And James Comey makes two decisions which are hugely important to the election. One is that he decides, yeah, we need to reopen this investigation. And in some ways, more importantly, two, he decides we need to tell Congress right away that we're reopening this investigation. And so, so he's thinking at this time, or at least what we know of his thinking at this, at this time, is that he feels like he needs to tell Congress because he doesn't want it to appear that he's uh, sitting on this information or trying to prevent it from coming out that they are, that they are looking at the Clinton emails again. Right. At that point, the FBI starts worrying about what will people say about us if they find out that we knew this and didn't say anything before the election? Will we, be, will we, the FBI, be accused of helping Hillary Clinton get elected? And that was a very alarming prospect to Comey and the others in the room. Importantly, the prospect they didn't consider was whether or not Trump could win. They really didn't think there was much chance of Trump winning the election. They didn't believe that was there was much risk of that. But Comey also felt like, well, you know, we really shouldn't consider who might win. We should, we should just not consider possible outcomes. But obviously, a decision like this, uh, an issue like this, is going to have some effect on the outcome. So looking at this timeline in its totality, what do you think is the part that something could have gone differently that would have changed the outcome of what Comey decided to do and what the ramifications were for reopening this investigation? So in, in the woulda, coulda, shoulda category, the most obvious one is when Special Agent Robertson first raises this question in uh, late September of 2016, if they had just done the investigative steps that they ended up doing instead in late October, they would have had their answer in early October, maybe the first or second week of October. And they would have known at that point, oh, well, you know what? We looked, we found some new emails, but they don't really change our understanding of anything. And at that point, in theory, if you, even if you made an announcement, it probably would not have been that seismic because what you would really be doing is saying, yeah, uh, we found something new. We looked at it, but it turned out not to be much of anything. Um, I'm not saying that would be a nothing announcement, but it would not be the sort of earthquake that hit the election uh, 11 days out. So now that we have a better picture of what was happening behind the scenes that that created the circumstances the way that they did, what what do you think is the lesson that's learned from here or like the the takeaway of what was really the thing that went wrong here? One person has described Comey's letter as essentially opening Pandora's box because what it really did was it really showed how much of an effect the FBI and the Justice Department can have on an election if they choose to do something in late October. And what a lot of folks have been trying to figure out is how do you, 
how do you go back to a place where government agencies, especially one like the Justice Department or like the FBI, are just not that central in political campaigns, are just not playing such a front and center role? And that is what a lot of senior officials have spent a good chunk of this year trying to do, trying to keep the FBI essentially out of the election this year. But one of the challenges is because of the events of 2016, a lot of folks are trying to draw them into it and and sort of recreate another October surprise if they can. I think the Bureau is trying very hard to get out of the way of the election. But the larger issue is that, you know, once you inject this level of sort of partisan suspicion and and expectation almost of an October surprise, those things can become a self-fulfilling prophecy if you let them. And so I, I think there's a lot of folks who are bracing for some kind of October surprise, not really knowing if it's going to happen or not, but just essentially still wary of, of what happened in 2016. Devlin Barrett covers the FBI and the Justice Department for The Post. His new book is out now. It's called October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. When the shutdown started in March, we saw a massive increase in online orders. We were unprepared, I would say, because of the volume that was to come. Some retailers, like Target, said that online orders had grown fivefold immediately, overnight, basically. And a lot of that has been sustained throughout the pandemic. So we're seeing a huge crush of orders, three, four, five times the usual volume. COVID-19 affected us a great deal. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of warehouse workers quit on the job or just kind of decide they don't want to work or they can't work because they don't have childcare. And so warehouses have tons of volume and are understaffed and it's creating this grueling working condition for a lot of workers. We were reporting unsafe working conditions, things that were happening, things that were falling apart, people not having enough staff, us not being able to staff. I'm Robin Blue Smith. I'm 32. I'm from Laurel, Maryland, and I work for Wayfair Jessup. I'm Ava Badurai, and I'm the retail reporter for The Washington Post. And what are the kind of conditions that these workers are operating under? Warehouse shifts are typically very long. They're at least about 10 to 12 hours, and many of the workers work five or six days a week. At times, we weren't able to leave the floor due to the demand. So a lot of the times it was micromanaging the workers around us because of the time constraints we had upon us. They're on their feet a lot. It's very physically grueling work. They're, you know, unloading trucks or placing things on shelves, maybe just fulfilling boxes, but it's very repetitive, very physical. And a lot of times they're they're in these huge warehouses, but they say it's very difficult to avoid coming into close contact with their colleagues. So they're very nervous about all of these socially distant precautions that they should be taking. And how have things gotten more complicated with these jobs because of COVID and the the risks that that presents? Depending on the company, we're seeing a number of measures. You know, some are just handing out masks and saying, please stay distant. But oftentimes the mask comes down. You're talking to your other coworkers. You're high-fiving. You're, you know, not keeping that 
safe distance in a warehouse that has now become cluttered with volume we weren't ready for. Others like Amazon have said they've put in 150 new safety measures in each warehouse, including portable sinks so people can wash their hands, thermal cameras so they can you know, check temperatures easily. They've hired additional cleaning and janitorial staff. So all of these companies are making efforts where they can, but workers say that it's just a very overwhelming situation. There's still a lot that gets lost. And how much do warehouse workers typically make? The average wage is about $21 an hour, which is a bit more than a worker might make at a retail store or, you know, in the hospitality industry. So these are relatively well-paying jobs. No, actually, I've been doing warehousing for like the last 10 years. Wayfair was just different as in the product. It also strikes me that a warehouse is very different from an office in that I imagine that the managers or executives of a warehouse, that they don't necessarily see everyone while they're working. It's such a big building and people are blocked by, you know, stacks of goods and that there's not as much kind of in-person contact between the people who work there and their managers. For the folks that you talk to, do they feel like they have support from higher ups and do they feel respected by the people that they work for? I think a lot of them feel like they've fallen through the cracks. It is underappreciated. Warehouse workers are underappreciated for sure. The workers in stores who are front-facing, customer-facing workers are maybe being thanked on a daily basis or they feel like they're making an impact in people's lives. Us as warehouse workers, like I said, I feel like we were underappreciated because they expected that turnaround to be the same as if it was a same-day sale versus people actually being home for months at a time and having more time to build, you know, their home offices or school areas for their children and things of that nature. Warehouse workers are really behind the scenes and they're fulfilling these sort of anonymous, nameless orders for people who are, you know, clicking buttons on their computers. So there's a real disconnect from the people that they're serving and they and they say that they don't feel that sense of satisfaction that maybe a grocery worker might. And tell me about some of the people that you talk to and some of the anecdotes that they relayed about what they have seen and experienced in these jobs. So I spoke with one warehouse worker, Robert Fox, who worked at the Wayfair Warehouse in Maryland. And he, along with a handful of other colleagues, were fired recently for gross misconduct for complaining about safety concerns. He said working conditions were getting steadily worse during the pandemic. For example, his job was to take employees' temperatures when they walked into the building, but he didn't have the authority to send anybody home if they had a fever. So in theory, they were checking temperatures, but in practice, people were still coming to work sick and infecting the people around them. His colleague, Robin Smith, who I also spoke with, said that it was difficult to maybe wash her hands as frequently as she liked because there were strict quotas on how many orders had to be fulfilled per hour. And there were also other issues. So I actually contracted COVID-19 and I was out on emergency PTO and I received a call from HR that said they were going to, they were separating me from the company for gross misconduct of the business and safety of the building. So there were all of these new hurdles that they were having to cross during the pandemic and that made their jobs much more difficult. I think it's really interesting that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people and and specifically people who were able to stay at home all the time and do their work remotely, that it was considered the responsible choice to avoid going to stores, avoid going to the grocery store, order everything online, have everything delivered to you. But I'm not sure that everyone pauses to think about how that basically 
puts the onus on someone else to take risks on your behalf, you know, either the person who is going to the grocery store and collecting things and and delivering them to your door, or in this case, the people who work at the warehouses to ensure that you can get this thing that you ordered online. And it feels like this is a quiet and kind of unseen cost of the way that people have been adapting for the past six months. Absolutely. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I spoke to workers, you know, warehouse workers at Neiman Marcus who were becoming resentful of the fact that they were fulfilling all these orders for luxury, you know, luxury handbags and designer jeans, things that nobody absolutely needed, you know, that weren't essential, but that they were having to risk their lives for. And a worker who worked at a Sephora warehouse told me that they had seen a huge spike in orders for makeup fridges. And so that's what they were working overtime to fulfill. And I wonder if. As these workers are dealing with all these challenges of their working conditions generally, but also specifically under COVID, does this situation give them a little bit more power that considering they're basically an essential part of the economy right now and the way that people are getting most of their essential and non-essential items, does that give them a little bit more of a place in terms of bargaining to get their employers to treat them with more respect and to put in more safety measures and to pay them more? In theory, it does. And a few months ago, we saw a handful of strikes at warehouses across the country, including Amazon and other companies, where workers really felt like they had a voice for the first time. How many cases we got? How many cases we got? Now, you don't have a mask? No, we don't have no mask. I have to wear scarves. We don't got no mask. They don't provide us with masks. They say they do, they don't. But a lot of that has died down now, and I think workers are back to feeling like they're very replaceable. Amazon, for example, has said they're going to hire 100,000 more employees just for the holiday rush. And there is this sense that, you know, if if one particular worker doesn't want to be there, there are 10 other people who are willing to take that spot. 30 million Americans are out of work and desperate for any type of job. And so I think that really puts warehouse workers at a bad position again. Abba Bhattarai is the retail reporter for The Post. She reached out to the companies that employees spoke about in her story. A spokeswoman for Wayfair said the company's warehouses adhere to rigorous safety policies. She said that those included social distancing, sanitation protocols, and emergency paid time off for employees who need it. And as always, we want to be clear that Amazon's founder and chief executive, Jeff Bezos, owns The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. Okay. Are you good? Good with the levels? About the woman who invented the idea of one more things. Three, two, one. Madalika, do you know what this is? Fifty years ago this weekend, when Miss... This is the sound of us recording the very first one more thing. And now, one more thing. And now, one more thing. And now, one more thing. That's our executive producer, Madalika Sika, and producer Ted Muldoon. And this is them making a pilot at the very beginning of our show. And now, one more thing. Madalika is leaving the post at the end of the week for a new adventure in the world of books. She's going to be vice president and executive editor at Crown Publishing, part of Penguin Random House. But just two years ago, she was in the process of inventing our show completely from scratch, creating the format and hiring all of us. Hi, Madalika. This is Jordan Marie. This is Maggie. It's Rena. It's Lena. This is Lexi. 
and I join everyone on the team when I say, we will really, really miss her. Ah, <sighs> Madalika. I am deeply sad. <laughs> I think overall, I'm just, I'm just going to miss your presence, Madalika. I think that the trust that you put in this team patiently with care and with attention makes us all want to be better. You built an entire team. That's really unlike any other at The Post. I wish you the best at Crown Publishing. And I can't wait to read all the books you bring into the world. Best of luck with your next chapter. I hope you publish many. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The first of three presidential debates is happening on Tuesday night, and you can watch at WashingtonPost.com. The live show starts at 8 p.m. Eastern before the debate at 9. Then, on Wednesday morning, listen to one of our sister podcasts here at The Post, The Daily 202. James Homan will have a recap of the debate with all the big moments and big takeaways. We'll put a link to The Daily 202 in today's show notes. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.